This is Two-Way Street from Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Virginia Prescott. Picking up the mantle of the venerable Bill Nygut as host. Today, we bring you two writers whose stories reflect a recurring dynamic of the American South. Rick Bragg traveled the world as a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times and made his way back home to the Appalachian foothills. Armistead Maupin cast off his family's Confederate legacy to write and to live openly gay in San Francisco. I spoke with both authors in the airy sanctuary of the First Baptist Church Decatur during the Decatur Book Festival. Today, you'll hear from both, beginning with Rick Bragg. He grew up in the tiny community of Possum Trot in Calhoun County, Alabama. He writes, It was a hard life, but most of the time, we ate like we were somebody. The best-selling author's newest book is full of traditional recipes and stories his mother, Margaret, collected. She never used a measuring cup, much less a mixer and knew them all by heart. I asked Rick Bragg what his mother thought of the title, The Best Cook in the World. Now that was a a matter of some mild disagreement. Uh, She thought that it was going to be, you know, three or four or five hundred pages of of bragging. And, you know, we'll never forget one evening she looked at me and and said well what would you even call a book like that and I said we're going to call it the best cook in the world and she said well I wasn't even the best cook it lived on our road my my mama was a good cook and my sister Edna was a good cook and and I said well that may be but calling it the third best cook on the Roy Webb road does not sing so I talked her into it. Here's Rick Bragg reading from The Best Cook in the World. I don't read a lot at, uh, at book events because if, you, if you're reading about family, sometimes you'll start to cry. And I think I've said this before in Georgia. Oh, and by the way, Nick sends his apologies. Uh, it'll take a minute for some of y'all to get that. But... Uh, you know, in the deep south, if a man of my size, I'm 6'2", 230, 220 now, I'm just getting lean as a gazelle. Uh, when they, uh, when they uh, uh, show some sensitivity in front of a large crowd of people, all the other men will drag them outside and beat them to death. You know, because being southerners, we don't want that sensitivity gene to catch on. You know, we won't stomp it out. So, so I may have to. I may get a little weepy, but I'll try not to. She cooked for dead, broke uncles, hungover brothers, shade tree mechanics, faith healers, dye shooters, hairdressers, pipe fitters, crop dusters, high steel walkers, and well diggers. She cooked for iron workers, Avon ladies, highway patrolmen, sweatshop seamstresses, fortune tellers, coal haulers, dirt track daredevils, and dime store girls. She cooked for lost souls stumbling home from Aunt Hattie's beer joint and for singing cowboys on the AM radio. She cooked in her first 80 years more than 70,000 meals, as basic as hot butter biscuits with pear preserves or muscadine jelly, as exotic as tender braised beef tripe and white milk gravy, in kitchens where the only ventilation was the banging of the screen door. 
She cooked for people she'd just as soon poison. (laughs) And for the loves of her life. She cooked for the ladies in town, melting beef short ribs into potatoes and Spanish onions. Another woman's baby on her hip. And sleepwalked home to feed her own boys home canned blackberries dusted with sugar as a late night snack. She panned fried chicken in Red's barbecue with a crust so crisp and thin it was mostly in the imagination. And deep fried fresh brim and crappie and hush puppies redolent with green onion and government cheese. She seasoned pinto beans with ham bone and baked crackling cornbread for old women who tugged a pick sack and stewed fat spare ribs and creamy butter beans that truck drivers would brag on 3,000 miles from home. She spiked collard greens with cane sugar and hot pepper for old men who had fought to hunt on the Hindenburg line and simmered chicken and dumplings for mill workers with cotton still stuck in their hair. She fried thin apple pies and white butter and cinnamon for pretty young women with a bus ticket out of this one horse town and baked sweet potato cobbler for the grimy pipe fitters and dusty bricklayers they left behind. She cooked for big-haired waitresses at the Fuzzy Duck Lounge, shiny-eyed pilgrims at the Congregational Holiness Campground, and crew-cut teenage boys who read comic books beside her banana pudding then embarked for Vietnam. She cooked most of all to make it taste good, to make every chip melamine plate a kind of poor man's banquet, because how do you serve dull food to people such as this? She became famous for it, became the best cook in the world, if the world ends just this side of Cedartown. But she never used a cookbook, not in her whole life. She never cooked from a written recipe of any kind and never wrote down one of her own. She cooked with ghosts at her right hand. And you can believe that or not. The people who taught her the secrets of southern blue-collar cooking are all gone now. And they did not cook from a book either. Most of them did not even know how to read and write. Every time this old woman steps from her workshop of steel spoons iron skillets and blackened pots, all she knows about the food leaves with her in the way that when a bird flies off a wire, it leaves a black line on the sky. That's author Rick Bragg talking about the best cook in the world, Tales from My Mama's Table. Our conversation was recorded live at the Decatur Book Festival. If you make us all cry, we're all going to have to go outside and get beat up. It's going to be a problem. Well, at least it'll be warm. <laughs> and, uh, and we I... learn in this book, as you are hearing, you're listening to your mom's recipes, listening to her in the kitchen. She says, a smidgen of this, a smidgen of that. You say, how long does it take to cook? Well, till it's done, you till know? it's done, and how much enough. <laughs> uh, the most damnable thing because I don't want to get out of the church in the South without at least one curse word. Uh, But the most damnable thing about it, that's two, uh, uh, this measurement, some. How much is some? What mathematical equation is some? And... The hard part of this book was not... And at this rate, we're only going to have two questions. (laughs) 
But uh, the hard part of this book was not the stories. The stories and the tales and the, you know, the, the old man sitting, you know, talking about making turtle soup on a riverbank. We've had those and getting them was, I won't say easy, but doable. The math, the turning her recipes into, into numbers, a lot of, fan, not fancy chefs, but some chefs have said, um, well, who test kitchen this? <laughs> and I said, I am six foot two and 230, and I am a test kitchen. <laughs> My whole life has been a test kitchen. But uh, you know, people have said, what is your ambition? For the book. My well, ambition. I wonder about that too. I mean, yeah. it's not as if people are going to, you know, try poke salad or cook possum. You, I mean, it's a, you got to feed them for a week. You'd be surprised. <laughs> there is a poor possum meeting its doom right now on the upper, <laughs> on the upper west side in Manhattan. <laughs> Been living in a cage in a one bedroom walk up. Well, in this book, we meet a lot of your family, going back generations, your great-granddaddy, who may or may not have killed a man in a knife fight in North Georgia. I think we should drift toward May. (laughs) We get um, uncles stealing hogs' feet or pigs' feet. Your grandfather shot his neighbor's son's wife through both bosoms, if I can say that in church. She was standing sideways. (laughs) And your granddaddy with a car full of kids ran over Clem Ritter on his way to a fried chicken dinner and because they were late, pulled him off to the side of the road and left him there until they could pick him up later. Yeah, These were not gentle folk, yeah, let's but say. See, you make it look a lot worse than it was. <laughs> and if you lump all our sins together in one paragraph, well, that wasn't nearly all of them, but, but of course we're going to look bad. But the truth is, um, the Clem Ritter thing, you need to understand the context. A, it was fried chicken. Okay? And it wasn't just fried chicken. It was my grandma's specialty of, of fried chicken that is not battered and rolled and... And, you know, crunch is not something you should get in fried chicken. You, the skin, the crust should be thin. And, and you know, it shouldn't taste. I, my grandma, I've always loved this. Sounds like somebody's breaking a glass table with a ball-peen hammer. And, uh, you know, food shouldn't taste like, sound like that. It, it, hers was she would take the chicken pieces and they'd be damp. And she would just dust them with flour and salt, you know, and maybe pepper, but you have to watch pepper because pepper burns. So, you know, you ha- you know, so she would, and that was her seasoning and bacon grease. And so there was fried chicken cooked in bacon grease, hot biscuits, and they had to be hot biscuits or she would throw them out. She would give them to the dogs, uh, not during the depression, but in better times. Uh, 
there was chicken gravy, water gravy, you know, that kind that's all, it's not yellow, it's not tan. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's not thick and chalky. It's not watery. It's just right. And, and her favorite thing to cook, which probably one of my favorites to eat, was just new potatoes, if she could get them, or just potatoes quartered and cooked with fresh green beans. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and a big piece of either fat back or bacon. But you don't want them too greasy because you got the, the chicken, you know. Uh, so, in other words, Clem Ritter didn't stand a chance. Well, no. Once again, you make it sound worse than it was. <laughs> they were coming back, and he was driving fast because he was running late. And my grandmother was a person to be feared. She wasn't that big, imposing, you know, southern woman. You know, she was a little bitty, tiny, bow-legged, nearsighted, who's just mean. I mean, she's just mean. <laughs> So he's got all these kids in the car and they're busting it back home to get home in time for lunch. And she came running out of the weeds, just wild-eyed and crazy acting. And she ran out of the weeds and he hit her. And you know, they all piled out of the car and looked down. There she was. And, you know, my Aunt Juanita, who's still just this big, said... Uh, Daddy had run over Clem Ritter's head with his truck tire. And I said, well, what would y'all do? She said, nothing. Daddy picked her up and slung her back off in the weeds. <laughs> and it was 20 minutes into that conversation before anybody bothered to tell me that it was a dog. <laughs> but even then, they should have done something. And I said, well, didn't you not do nothing? She said, no. Hun, 15, 20 minutes later after we had had supper, uh, here she come walking up in the yard. <laughs> staggering and weaving and, you know, her head was still kind of womp-sided. So see, it's not nearly as bad as you made it sound. <laughs> One of the things you write in this book is they say a poor man only makes the paper twice in the Deep South unless he breaks the law or plays football. A lot of good men have lived and died down here inside a paragraph or two. And yet you, you made your career in newspapers. You're a Pulitzer Prize winning feature writer, made your living in books. All of this ink spent on people who you came from. What, what does that mean to you? It's the only chance I've got. It's the only chance. I, and in a building like this, I think about it. You know, you walk in these buildings and your first thought is there's just something. There's just something good, especially when you when a church lends itself to reading to to reading lots of books, not the one, but lots of books. There's just something good and pure about that. And and I walk in a church on a day like today, and I always think, God, I need to try to do better. <laughs> of course, by the time it's all over with, I always say I'll do better next time, but. But the one, if when all this is over with, and what's that old cliche, if I'd known I'd live this long, I'd take better care of myself. Well, that's a lie. But I do gripe about, you know, aches and pains and woe 
But the thing I'm most proud of in my life is that we put a human face on my people. Now, that's been done for hundreds of years, but most of the popular Southern writers use cliché. And I'm not talking about modern day, but I'm talking about historically. Faulkner, as much as I love the beauty of Faulkner's language, wrote of us as cliché. Uh, even one of the best books ever written, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, the villain was the people who lived on the road to the dump, to the city dump. And there was a line in there about no amount of money would ever change their situation. And I met that lady and told her what she meant to me. But Southern writers don't view the South I think the way the South has lived, that a lot of the cruelty and meanness and racism and, and small-mindedness, yes, we, my people, were the foot soldiers in that, but they were the foot soldiers in that. Does anybody really believe that without a, what they have in Mississippi, the Southern, um, what was it called, the White Citizens Council? You know, it, it, Doctors and lawyers occasionally do bad. Occasionally, they tend to lead their communities. Heads of industry lead their communities. So I wanted to write about my people with all their warts and all their problems, but also with the strengths of character. If you can stand in a cotton mill and work 12 hours, standing on an upside-down Coca-Cola box, lending your fingers, hands, and arms to that machine, and walking out sometimes after a career, not whole, working in heat that most people couldn't stand. Those people deserve books. You know, the, those people deserve books. And, and I think the, you know, this food was their celebration. So I guess I'll stop writing about them when I run out of things to say or we run out of family reunions, or we run out of... Uh... But I write about them, I think, realistically. I don't think we sugarcoat them. I don't think we... We, we really... I won't say we don't romanticize them because they were born to be romanticized. You know, a man who can stand in the company of other people and, and tell straight-faced that he once caught a catfish the size of a Studebaker... <laughs> there's a man in Tuscaloosa right now in Tuscaloosa, Alabama right now telling another man that he knew a guy in high school who could pee over a Studebaker now it's a, it, it's a different place now Calhoun County where you where your people were from uh, now it looks like the family plot is across from the Dollar General there that uh, has created some consternation. Because uh, I don't know how I want to spend eternity. But spending it in... Well, no, the Dollar General's gone. The tornado took it away. The tornado blew the Dollar General away. So see, now I have to live with all them mean things I said about the Dollar General. <laughs> That's why you should really do as my mama said. Just don't say nothing mean about nobody. But uh, what I was afraid of was all my people were buried 
there right across the road from the Dollar General. And y'all know that yellow sign that the Dollar General has? That might not be the ambiance you want on your coffin for the rest of your days on this planet. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I had it pictured where we laid my Uncle Jimbo. It, it, we, my Uncle Jimbo was the best storyteller on our planet, and he died a year ago. We buried him in a country cemetery in White's Gap, right hard up against the woods where he was most at home. You know, and, and that, that appeals to me. But you don't get to say because you got to be laid down with the people that you're closest to. So, you know, you know, my mama and my, my people, my grandma. So I guess they'll rebuild the Dollar General. And I guess, you know, if I had just sold just one million more books, <laughs> I could have bought that lot and put up a monument or, or something. But no, uh-uh. Well, you're okay with it, but how's your wife feel about it? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Go <laughs> to this nice lady over here. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I also am six foot two, two hundred and thirty pounds. <laughs> yeah, but you're better preserved than I am. Um, I wanted to ask you, why do you think in the South we so value our eccentrics? Why are they so beloved? You know, that, that's, that's one of my favorite questions because my answer changes every time. Uh, um, I think, first of all, I, I think that a lot of the people who talk about our eccentrics tend to be from the, the landed people. And, 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 you know, they think it's picturesque to put their great aunt in the attic. You know, and I've heard it say that Southerners don't put their people in the attic, that they just let their crazy people run around. <laughs> and that's what makes us more interesting than, <clears throat> than people elsewhere. They have never been to Ireland. But, you know, they have ne they've never been to a lot of the places I've been to. I got cornered by an Irish gentleman in a bar in in uh, London, and I could not understand what he was saying to me. But he punctuated every, every single point, and he would po poke his finger at me. And he punctuated every point that he'd make with a, with a really terrible curse word. <laughs> and, and after a while, it occurred to me that he was with me. <laughs> you know what I mean? That my people were his people. You know, my people were his people. And he would go, you know, and then he'd cuss. So after about 20 minutes, I started going, you know, you're right. <laughs> then I would cuss. And we walked out of that bathroom, best friends. And so I don't think that Southerners have the corner on wacky. But I, I, this is what I think. And look, I believe that we're, I believe we're more interesting, you know, but 
I believe that, that, that we've been through, look, every single doorway to every single house or apartment or mobile home uh, opens on its own struggle. So I can't say Southerners have had harder lives than other people have. What we have had is more battleground on our soil. You know, we, you know, we lost the, you know, white Southerners lost the Civil War, which was not a very good idea for my people, you know, who died by the hundreds, thousands, ten thousands of dysentery, you know, for the rich man's war, which was what it was. The Civil Rights Movement was fought mostly on this soil. Another not very great idea for my people to, to, to be the foot soldiers on the wrong side in that cause, you know. Now, there'll be one dumbass out there who'll say, Rick Bragg said the Civil Rights Movement was a bad idea. No. <laughs> no, it was a wonderful... No. It was a wonderful idea. And it was a wonderful cause. But my people in the 50s and 60s were on the wrong side of it. And uh, so Southerners of all color and all class have a cheek and jowl proximity to violence and sadness and pathos and all those things that they talk about, you know, those little fellas. See, I don't look much like a writer. Most writers wear a lot of, like, like bow ties. <laughs> and, and, and they tend to run small. <laughs> Y'all know what I mean? And they are very much at home at the Faulkner Festival at Ole Miss talking about the duality of man. You know, I, I think that it's our proximity to our history and maybe our crazy folks. Uh, and what is, I think we have a harder time in the Deep South determining what is crazy. Some people would say, I went to listen to Rick Bragg in the Baptist Church, and he is crazy. <laughs> listen, let's say thank you to Rick Bragg. Rick Bragg there, author and writing professor at the University of Alabama. We did have to edit out a couple of questions, including one about the music that Rick likes to listen to. Garden and Gun put together a Spotify playlist of that music. You're listening to one of them now. A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died. One fist of iron, the other of steel. If the right one don't get you, then the left one will. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Stay with us for Armistead Maupin, another son of the South, but one who discovered his voice as a writer by leaving it behind. This is Two Way Street. I'm Virginia Prescott. We are back in just a minute on GPB. Oh, 
Virginia Prescott, and this is Two-Way Street. Today, two writers whose Southern heritage influences their writing in distinct ways. We just heard from Rick Bragg, author of biographies and memoirs that honor the hard scrabble lives of his elders. Armistead Maupin also talked with me at the Decatur Book Festival. He is author of the best-selling Tales of the City series, and now a memoir called Logical Family. That's his name for the community that we find when venturing beyond our biological family. Armistead Maupin grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. His father was a vehement segregationist from a long line of Confederate ancestors. By the age of 13, Maupin knew he was gay and was terrified of anyone discovering that he was that way, as they said in those days. When I spoke with him in the First Baptist Decatur Sanctuary, I asked him about the day that his father walked out of church. Well, the Reverend Dan Sapp, who uh, was a very, rather flamboyant man, who would ask how you liked his dress when you saw him when you were leaving the church, if you had a new cassock. Uh, it was a very kind, lovely guy who would visit the sick and dying and was loved by the whole church. And naturally, when the time came for discussions to be finally to be made about desegregation, he got up and said that it was time to let the black folks sit down on this floor. The, the, the balconies at Christ Church were the old slave galleries. The church had been built in 1848. And to invite them to communion, because they weren't allowed to come and have communion in the church. This was in the late 50s. And he got, got up in the pulpit and said so one Sunday in a very non-firebrand way. And my father turned and looked at the family and said, God damn it, we're getting out of here. My father was a deeply religious man, as you can tell. <laughs> and, and so he, he signaled my mother, who had to do what he said. And she looked at us, and, uh, because she was our moral leader and said, let's go. And um, so we left, and, and I looked around thinking that we were going to be leading this whole parade of protesters, <laughs> and we were the only ones. There were people who looked very briefly, and they knew the time had come. They knew that was the right thing to do. My father, uh, you know, was very silent in the car on the way home because his revolution had failed. For someone growing up today and reading this story, you know, somebody who's growing up LGBTQ or otherwise, it may be hard for them to understand how terrifying it was for you to be thought of as that way, as they said, of Reverend Dan Sapp. Well, the simple way, uh, Dan Sapp, by the way, before, before he died, I, I saw him at a, uh, a cocktail party or something, and he came up to me and put his arm around my waist and sort of slumped his hip against me. He wasn't making a pass, that's just kind of the way he stood. Even, even when he was making a sermon, he was a little flouncy. <laughs> and, and, and he said, I'm so proud of you. Um, so there were always those people in my midst. And I, when I became famous as a gay man and a writer, 35 years ago, whenever it was, uh, they'd come up to me at book signings, and it was hard sometimes to say, well, where the hell were you? <laughs> you know, I did not have that support. The reason I didn't have it and nobody else had it was what I was was a crime, a mental illness, and a sin all at the same time. 
and when I finally did it, it wasn't nearly as much fun as it should have been. <laughs> well, you were sort of... Pro- I, I, got, I got used to it. I, got, I worked my way into it. <laughs> Well, you did. You went to, uh, well, there are so many things that happened. In fact, you're almost like a Forrest Gumpian character in a way. It is really interesting. You served under, all right, Gee, in, in which thanks, way Virginia. I'll describe. <laughs> <laughs> Only in that you were in these really critical parts of history. You served under the admiral who okayed the use of Agent Orange in yeah. the Delta. You met President Nixon. He invited me to the he Oval invited Office. invited you. Well, we've got to pull some of these threads because these are just fantastic little bits of history. You worked at a newspaper and a television station owned by Jesse Helms. Yes. You knew Rock Hudson. I did. I you had knew- Rock Hudson. <laughs> He invited me. <laughs> I never went where I wasn't wanted. <laughs> you also knew Harvey Milk, and those are two men who in, in many ways embodied gay experience at that time in the 70s mm. and 80s. Rock Hudson deeply closeted, Harvey Milk out there. So you were a witness to this emergence and and incredible evolution for the LGBT community. I was, and I've been, I was blessed in that way. And we were part, we knew who we were in San Francisco. We knew we were part of this revolution. And the fact that you could combine it with your nightlife, that was pretty wonderful. <laughs> to assert your right to make love was a political act. And that's why the revolution you know, happened. We were, uh, well, I write about being in, uh, going to bathhouses in San Francisco in the early days and how it taught me what, was, what those straight people had been doing all along and reacting to was the right to hold another person in your arms and feel that peace that comes with that. I never had it at all. I'd been, I was virgin until I was 25. And uh, it was, and it, you did it with, it was in the dark and everybody was there, so it was a deeply democratizing experience. And sometimes I was democratized till dawn. <laughs> <laughs> but these, these, <laughs> but these places at first when you went there, you know, struck you as kind of, Tawdry and, and well, how I'm trying to understand like what broke, what changed from this young man. You were a conservative. You volunteered for uh, for to serve in Vietnam. You were a bigoted person. How yeah. did that shift? Um, I won't say the one word I usually say, <laughs> but the right to assert your own sexuality make and and when you become indignant about people what's being done to you in terms of suppression, you look at other people who've been through the same thing. I suddenly realized what the, you know, what the civil rights movement was about. The, the right to, not to sit quietly in the corner and shut up, which is what we told black people to do for so long. It made me examine that and my friends, my straight friends, I owe a lot to the straight folks that I met in San Francisco I got really drunk on Mai Tais one night, something that you, 
you, Tales of the City readers will recognize <laughs> a practice of a drunken matron named Franny Halcyon. That was just me. Um, <laughs> I, I drank some Mai Tais at this Polynesian restaurant near the Associated Press where I worked and went home to m the, my only friend in town, this wonderful woman with two small babies. And I said, I have something to tell you, Jan. And she looked at me and I look, must have looked stricken and said, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm homosexual. And she got out of her chair and came over and knelt in front of me and took my hands in hers and said, big deal. <laughs> and the scales fell from my eyes. I realized in a city where people really, you know, she said, half the town is gay. <laughs> I was well on my way to meeting them all, I think, but... Um, <laughs> But it was that kind of open-hearted spirit that made me lighten up on myself, because that's what you're doing. When you're in the closet, you're really beating up on yourself in a big way. That's Armistead Maupin, recorded live at the Decatur Book Festival. He's author of the new memoir, Logical Family, and nine Tales of the City books. We'll talk more about that groundbreaking series when Two-Way Street continues. I'm Virginia Prescott with Two-Way Street from Georgia Public Broadcasting. Back to my conversation with Armistead Maupin, recorded live at the Decatur Book Festival. Maupin wrote the Tales of the City serial, which ran in the San Francisco Chronicle from 1976 to 1989, then as a popular PBS series in the 90s. What bugs me about women is that you never know what they're like. And they only show you what they want you to see. Yeah. So you fantasize over all the wrong things? Yeah. Christ, that happens to me all the time. I'll meet a nice guy, mustache, Levi's, strong. You could take him home for Christmas and they'd never know. And you go home with him to his house on Upper Market and you try like hell not to go to the bathroom because that's the giveaway, the fantasy killer. Hmm? It's the bathroom cabinet, full of face creams and shampoos for days. And on top of the toilet tank, they've always got one of those goddamn little gold pedestals full of colored soap balls. <laughs> <laughs> right, though? Am I right? Totally. Millions of viewers followed the lives of gay and straight characters who used drugs, they cursed, and sometimes got naked much to the unrestrained ire of Senator Jesse Helms, Maupin's one-time boss who thought taxpayers should not underwrite such diversions. PBS stopped making the program, which Showtime later picked up. And just this year, there's a movie, The Untold Tales of Armistead Maupin. But it all started with his daily column. I was writing 800 words a day, five days a week. That means all sorts of stuff comes tumbling out of you that you're not aware of. My mother, uh, I won't say bless her heart because that means something else in the South. Uh, my wonderful mother once said to me, darling, I'm loving Tales of the City. They were subscribing to the newspaper. Yeah, oh no. That's when Michael came out, I came out to them through the newspaper. Uh, with that, I wrote a letter that would be the letter I would want to write. And uh, 
She said, there's, a, there's just one little device that you use, maybe a little too infrequently. I just wanted to tip you off to it. And I said, what is that? And she said, people are always reaching across a table and squeezing someone's hand in reassurance. And that was excruciatingly embarrassing because that was me. That's what I wanted. I wanted somebody to tell me it was going to be all right. And it made its way into tales. I think one of the reasons that the characters are... are are liked by so many people is that that vulnerability is on display. Your mother also asked, Daddy would like to know how an Eagle Scout knows about all of these things. <laughs> <laughs> she knew, mothers always know, by the way, and yet they're the ones we're afraid to tell. Um, because we probably, because many of us value that love above the love of our fathers, because we, there's often a greater intimacy with your mother. She knew very early on. And she went down to the Olivia Rainey Library in Raleigh and checked out everything you wanted to know about sex, what we were afraid to ask, <laughs> which is the worst piece of trash ever written. And the chapter on homosexual, homosexuality involves having sex with light bulbs. She didn't bring it up, but when I, got, I read that part, I thought, oh no, do I have to tell her I don't do that? The column itself uh, in the film that we, I saw last night, Neil Gaiman says, it's like a Trojan horse, that you are, first of all, it's amazing that in uh, the 1970s, there was a serialized, fictional, you know, Dickensian kind of column inside of a major American newspaper. And then that you're talking about gay sex and you're talking about everyday drug use and transgender issues and eventually about AIDS, which nobody had been talking about. Yeah. I was my life. I was living it. And, and I'd used all along, I used the guide, if it's happening to me, it's immoral if I don't write about it. And I just wanted to lay the truth out there because I thought the truth was beautiful. Um, what I was seeing around me with men and women who were declaring themselves as loving their own sex, that was a beautiful thing. The newspaper, I'm, I, was, <laughs> I was pretty much in the closet when I was hired at the newspaper. I wore a, a, a blue blazer and button-down, you know, this outfit and didn't say anything except that I was going to write about the misadventures of a new girl in town. I, I just didn't tell him who the new girl was. Uh, and uh, when they figured it out, when, when one of the characters woke up in bed with a man, and, you, and you're reading in the newspaper, and he doesn't, you don't know who he's talking to at first, then you realize he says something about a sheet, and, uh, and you realize he's, woke, he's woken up with the man he went to bed with. And uh, they, the managing editor, was told to watch out for this because the homosexuals were proliferating. <laughs> we were reproducing rather rapidly <laughs> in Tales of the City. So he created a chart in his office <laughs> that it said homosexual and heterosexual. And every time a new character was introduced, they were put into the appropriate column. And my instruction was at no time were the homosexuals to outnumber 30% of the population, which the newspaper rather wisely 
had figured out was roughly the population of San Francisco. <laughs> and so whenever a character came in, they put one in the column. This, this is not in the documentary, this is new material. Um, I wrote an, an, an episode in which Franny Halcyon, the lady that liked my ties, came home from a lunch, a little drunk, and fell asleep in her herb garden and woke up to find uh, her great Dane, Faust, uh, making love to her leg. <laughs> and I made them put the dog in the heterosexual column. <laughs> It's almost more vulgar when you say making love to her leg, isn't it? <laughs> Humping would have been better, right? I... I want to circle back, though, to that letter to Mama, because it was so important. It's for you, obviously, to... Well, it's a dog whistle, isn't it? As they say now, that you were writing as Michael Tolliver, writing to his Mama about who right. he really was. And you found that so many people use that as a template. Sometimes even like, you know, cutting out the column, sending it to their parents with their name crossed out. Yeah, I still hear that. To you. Um, and that letter has been, um, been made into um, several choral pieces performed all over the world. It's been reproduced more than anything I've ever written. And I wrote it in 45 minutes at the newspaper office because I had been wanting to say it for 15 years. Why, why then, though? Why, this was 1977, you were 30 at that time. Why then? Does orange juice ring a bell? Well, he was, he, he was the, the son of Orlando. To the older folk, it does. <laughs> Anita Bryant. A day without orange juice is a day without sunshine. Um, started something in South Florida, Dade County, called the Save Our Children Initiative. An open assault, because they had just passed a gay rights ordinance in Miami, and she was really upset about it. But I was mad about it, and so and a lot of people in San Francisco were, it really mobilized a generation. Uh, Harvey Milk was out uh, leading the fight, and and I, and I thought, the best thing I can do is have Michael's mother, who, by some divine intervention, I had already established as the son of Florida orange growers. <laughs> Mrs. Tolliver writes her son this breezy letter from home, and at the end of it say, by the way, we've joined this wonderful organization called Save Our Children, started by Anita Bryant. And, uh, She's telling her own gay son that she's going to stop homosexuals, and says, isn't he proud of her? And it's more than he can take, and so he writes the letter coming out to them. That, more than anything, made it clear that my responsibility was to tell you the truth, that your own child is homosexual, and that I never needed saving from anything, except the cruel and ignorant piety of people like Anita Bryant. I'm sorry, Mama, not from what I am, 
but for how you must feel at this moment. I know what that feeling is, for I felt it for most of my life. Revulsion, shame, disbelief, rejections through fear of something I knew even as a child was as basic to my nature as the color of my eyes. My parents weren't, didn't, didn't join the Save Our Children Foundation, but they might have because they were still, and to, to his death, my father was an ardent supporter of Jesse Helms and a friend. When I went to my father's funeral, Jesse Helms had left a half an hour earlier um, at our house, I mean, the wake. So that's, what I, that's basically um, what I was saying, was that I don't want you to, my mother was worried that I was gonna have this terrible life. That's what they t taught mothers back in those days. She said to me when, I, when we finally talked about it, I know, you're, I know it's okay now when you're young and randy. She actually said randy. <laughs> she was good with some things. Uh, but what's it going to be like when you're an old man? Hello? <laughs> I had no idea at the time, of course, that a future like this was waiting for me, but... I'm the best ad there is for telling your truth and as clearly as you can because it, would, it actually brought into my life the thing that would make me famous, and I dreaded people finding out, and give me a subject matter that would last for my entire lifetime. A new version of Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City series is on its way to Netflix. And that is it for my two-way street kickoff of conversations from the Decatur Book Festival in Decatur, Georgia. Tyler Morris and Elena Rivera produced the broadcast. Thanks to Emily Hackshaw, Lane Sterrett, and Sarah Shariari of GPB, and to Julie Wilson and the staff and volunteers of the Decatur Book Festival. Special thanks to my AV ace in the hole, Matt Arnett. We also had help from Jennifer Lutz of The Great American Read, and you can still vote for your favorite. You can find links to hear Rick Bragg's Kitchen Playlist or to watch the documentary The Untold Tales of Armistead Maupin, all at gpbnews.org. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Two-Way Street from GPB.